evening to you, Deuteronomy chapter 31 this evening. By the way, as we're turning there, I mentioned a week ago on the morning services, but I forgot to on the evening services. We've had some thefts here at night uh, in the e- Sunday evening services. One of the women had their purse stolen out in the fellowship hall three or four weeks ago. Someone had their wallet stolen out of their purse right here in the sanctuary. And uh, I understand even a wallet was stolen during a missionary share night uh, this last uh, week before last. And so, you know, we open up the doors. We don't know who's coming in. Obviously, someone's marking us right now. And uh, as I said, the Lord knows who they are, and and he'll take care of it. But in the meantime, you know, watch your stuff. I I wish the world wasn't the way that uh, it is, but it is what it is. And I'll tell you, when I was a kid, if you had ever got caught, I mean, you could go out, you could rob 30 banks, But if you ever stole from a church, or you stole from someone in church, you might as well move to another country. Uh, Wasn't that the way? I mean, it just just was, nobody would tolerate it. So, if you're here tonight, repent. And uh, God's got grace for you. Get saved. And uh, get a job, and he'll uh, earn your money. That's That's the best way. Okay? All right. I'm feeling a lot better, by the way, having... Listen, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher, so you've got to go on a little bit here. When we get into chapter 31, 32, 33, 34, the end of not only the book of Deuteronomy, but the end of the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, or the uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy. But in, in these final four chapters, we really have Moses. It's kind of a bittersweet thing for me, actually, because I have great respect for Moses. And... Um, you know, there, uh, I look at the Apostle Paul, of course, and, and God's use of him. And uh, a number of years ago, I, it was just a joy for me. I don't know how you felt about it, but to look at the life and the ministry of, of David, it was some kind of depth and such respect for him. And I've always wanted to do kind of an in-depth on Moses. So this has been kind of fun for me. And all the highs and lows that he went through in his service to the Lord and you know, his own mistakes and who doesn't understand that and then what he went through and how God worked and how God used him. It's really a tremendous story. And so he's coming to the end now of his life and essentially the end of his ministry. The only reason he is coming to the end of his life is his ministry is over. And when our ministry is over, it really is time uh, to go home to heaven. And the Lord knows uh, my feelings very strongly on that issue. I don't want to be in this world not one day longer than he has grace on my life to be here. Because if I'm here one day longer, it's not good. Not good for me. Not talking about other people. And so when our ministries are over and it's time to slip home, where we're going, it's time to slip home. And that's what's going to happen in Moses' life But God always does some preparation related to this. And so he's going to hand the baton off. little Olympic lingo for you, illustration. Uh, Boy, those were terribly uh, messed up baton handoffs. Weren't they in the Olympics on some of those things? Just tragic to watch that and all those years and hours. And Well, this one goes a little more smoothly, thankfully. And Moses is going to hand the baton off for the leadership of the nation of Israel to Joshua. And so he's got some final touches that he wants to, to do and God wants to do through him before he passes off the scene. It begins with some personal con- comments here. 
when in chapter 31 and then Moses went and he spoke these words to all of Israel and he said to them I'm a hundred and twenty years old today wow that's a lot of candles you buy those ones where you can't blow them out then it's really trouble isn't it hundred and twenty years old we'll talk about that a little more next time I can no longer go out and come in also the Lord has said to me you shall not cross over this Jordan and so when he says I can't go uh, I, he says, I can no longer go out and come in it isn't that his joints are aching or anything like that like a, a lot of the rest of us can have he says I'm having trouble getting out of bed now and I know the end is very near it's not that kind of a situation in Deuteronomy chapter 34 we'll, we'll be told that when he died at 120 he, his eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor abated so he did, he's 120 years old and doesn't need glasses and uh, not taking geritol or any kind of an energy drink or anything like that he's he, 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 it was just time to go home so he finished his ministry and so uh he so he's preparing them for the fact that i'm going to pass off the scene now and uh and uh, and in passing off the the scene he's going to again begin to turn their eyes over to Joshua. And he tells them one of the other reasons that he's not going to be able to take them into the land is because of his sin. When he uh, smote the rock a second time when God had spoken to him to speak to the rock, and uh, in doing so he ruined that Old Testament type and image of Jesus, where Jesus, that rock that the water came forth from when he smote it with his staff the water came forth he was to speak to it the second time and the water come forth because it was a picture of Christ and Christ is, uh, gives us a living water he gives us re eternal refreshment but he was only to, Jesus was only smitten once upon the cross and now having put my faith in him as a Christian he doesn't have to be re-smitten again there's no transubstantiation none of those things now we just come to him and we talk with him and Moses marred that picture and he's a big boy he looks like something like that I look at some of the, that that failure on his part and I think wow I mean what would God do to me and uh, I've misrepresented him and, and all but I think God just took Moses and wanted to make uh, him an example of him of the seriousness of not misrepresenting God before his people and so this was the reason God had said because of that you're not going to lead them in to the promised land and there's imagery that's involved here as we get into Joshua Moses does represent the law the law could never take uh, in Joshua in his name means Jesus the law could never can never take us into the promised land as Christians uh, it takes Jesus to do that we'll talk about that when we get into Joshua and he said the Lord your God himself crosses over before you so he's broken the news to them I'm not going with you but he's t he tells them you're in good hands because the same God that's been looking out for you through me all these years, He's going to continue to look out for you. And it's not an easy thing to have. They've got a 120-year history with Moses. So you don't like to see changes in the administration or whatever like that when things are going good. They've, been, they've given a hard time, but it's been good for them. So this is difficult news. He immediately points them to the Lord 
I'm going to go off uh, to be with my fathers, but the Lord your God himself, he's going to cross over before you, and he will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall possess them. You're going to be successful. doesn't matter that I'm going by the wayside. You're going to be successful because God's call upon you as a nation, and, and you'll be successful as you obey him. And one of the interesting things to me to watch in these kind of these transitions that occur and probably the most famous transition of authority in, in, in all in, in the Bible occurs between Moses and Joshua and we always talk about sometimes where we see a leader growing a little bit older and we wonder well who's going to be there Joshua who's going to be coming in behind them and so it's this this kind of a picture that's prevalent in our mind And the fact of the matter is in the body of Christ leaders go Leaders live, they do their ministry, their ministries come to an end, they're gathered into heaven, but God never goes through that cycle. God just raises up his next leader and he keeps things moving forward. It's one of the great testimonies, and there's so many of them, but it's one of the great testimonies to me of the fact that God is real and that God is alive is that for 2,000 years the body of Christ has not merely existed and survived, but it has expanded all around the world through so much movement, so many people coming and going, such gifting and talent that you would think, boy, the body of Christ is going to be set back with a loss of this great saint or whatever, and the Lord just continues to march this thing forward and, and into his God-appointed end of, of history. And so leaders, they come and they go. We don't just mean, well, they come and they go. I'm not talking about it that way. But, but they do. Leaders, they die. God never dies. And so that's what he, he points them to the one that will, will, is, is not afflicted by this thing called death. So he's going to go with you. You're going to be successful. You're going to destroy the nations from before you. And you're going to dispossess them of the land. And Joshua himself crosses over before you just as the Lord uh, has said. And so I'm not going to be going over with you, but Joshua is going to be the one that leads you into this new part of your history. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. And so you're going to go over, you're going to be successful. He said, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, the people in the land, for the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you, and He will not leave you or forsake you. Now in a life of faith, uh, there's always going to be fear. God calls us to take the next step that he calls us to. It's a place we've never been before. And we realize this is way, way beyond our resources. And so fear naturally is one of the first reactions a person will have when God calls them to do something new and something big. And Moses recognizes that. And so what Moses does is he takes and speaks to them of the source of their courage and the source of, of their strength. And when he thinks about, okay, what is, what is a source of courage and strength that is greater than anyone or anything we might face? It's the Lord. 
And so he again encourages them with the Lord, in the Lord, and in the Lord's presence. Now when we talk about the Lord's presence, it isn't that we know God is present everywhere all at the same time. So well, we know the Lord is present with me. And if we have the idea that he's just an observer, he's always with me and he's watching everything. Well, of course that's true. But the idea here is that he is an active presence with us. Whatever he needs to do in any situation in our life to make sure that his promises are yea and amen, that we will be successful in what he's called us to do, then he will actively do that out of his presence. And so it's, it's the assurance of our success. And not only is he present with us, but he never leaves. That's kind of nice, isn't it? <laughs> He'll never leave you or forsake you, Moses said to them. And of course the Bible says the very same thing to us in the book of Hebrews. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I like what Jesus said when he gave the great commission to the disciples and he said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us and he is the great determining factor of whether we're going to be successful or not. And then Moses called Joshua and so he's spoken to Israel. Now he's going to speak to Joshua in front of all of Israel. And he said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you, and he will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And so he gives him basically the same kind of encouragement and uh, reassurance in, in the Lord that he gave to the nation of Israel. Now, as Moses hands off the baton uh, to Joshua, Joshua will, no one will have the pure kind of authority that Moses had. Basically, he's, he is saying before the nation of Israel, Joshua is now going to become the political leader, the military leader of, uh, of the people. Moses had a relationship with God. He had a place where he, uh, you know, not even as a high priest could go into the, to the tabernacle, meet with God, these kinds of things where he was the spiritual influence that he was upon the nation and that he had. That didn't transfer onto Joshua. Moses was, Moses was very unique in, in the history of the people of God in, in, in Jewish history. And so he, he openly gives this charge and this encouragement uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, Joshua here. And so Moses wrote this law and he delivered it to the priests. And what he wrote was probably the, the book of Deuteronomy. Gave it to the priest, the son of Levi, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders uh, of Israel. And so Moses takes the law and he delivers it to the spiritual leaders of Israel. And what Moses is doing here is he's setting up regulations among the spiritual leadership of Israel to assure that the word of God will continue to be at the center of the national life of the nation of Israel. Moses believed in the power of the word of God. He believed in the importance of the word of God in people's lives. So he sets this thing up in a way so that, they, that no matter where they lived as Jews, no matter what was going on, they would always, each generation, be exposed to the Word of God. And so he gives this book.
Check, check, check. Okay. There we are. All right. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 28. <laughs> All right, so he's given verse 9 there. He's given the law to the spiritual leaders. And Moses commanded them, verse 10, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time, in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So he says, all right, every time there is the annual Feast of Tabernacles, which always occurred in the fall, he said, every seven years, I want you spiritual leaders to stand up and read the entirety of this covenant that you as, as the nation of Israel have made with God on this day. And, and so every seven years, all the family would come together. Most the, the Jewish feast, three main Jewish feasts, this was one of the three each year. The men were required to attend it. But every seven years, the whole family, the wives, the kids were to come because everyone was to be exposed to the Word of God. I remember reading years ago somewhere that they said not every cell in the human body reproduces. There are certain cells that once, you, once they're done, they're done. They don't reproduce. And I think the brain is in that category or something. So, boy, that explains a lot. So, but otherwise, they estimated that every seven years, the body reproduces itself. It has a whole new set of, it's, it's reproduced itself structure. So you kind of have a new body in terms of, uh, of that. So that really doesn't help us at all here. But I, I thought it was... Uh, reminded me of that and so so the, every seven years the law was to be read to everyone gather the people together men and women and little ones and the stranger who is within your gates so also the Gentiles that were living among them the law was to be read and here's the reasons why that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God to learn a respect for God. And how will that respect for God, how is the fear of the Lord best represented? And carefully observe all the words of this law. No one who casually disobeys the word of God has a fear of God. Fear of God is always supremely represented in obedience. So that was one reason, was to teach them the fear of, of the Lord respect for him and, and, and know how to obey him in response to his greatness. And then the second reason in verse 13, and that, that's a reason word, their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. And so every seven years, uh, at each each generation or so of seven years would come, and, and how many times would be two, three times in their, their youth, they would be exposed at least twice uh, exposed to the reading of, of this law of Deuteronomy. And it must have been really something for them to be there, whatever age they would be. In their first exposure to this event, they would be somewhere in that one to seven years old. They see the whole nation of Israel gathered together, moms, dads, young, old, everyone there. And the law is read, the book of Deuteronomy in its entirety. And they hear the adults in the nation commit to obeying the word of God. I mean, you think about the impression that that would make upon a child. 
And there's, there's my mom, there's my dad committing to obey God's Word and to walk with God. And it was intended to be one of those kind of uh, formative events in, in a person's life. And so every seven years, that respect, knowledge of the Word, respect for the Word of God was to be demonstrated as a nation. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate uh, him. And so God calls for a private meeting with Moses and Joshua. And so Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tabernacle, at the tabernacle, in a pillar of of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And of course the pillar of cloud was one of the representations of his presence. And so the Lord is present there to meet with Moses and with Joshua. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers. And this people will rise up, play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they will go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I made with them. Now put yourself in Moses' place. How in the world would that hit you? Moses, you have spent 120 years of your life and certainly 40 years in a very, very personal way. You've invested your life into these people. And let me tell you what's going to happen when you pass off the scene. They're going to fall straight into idolatry. They're going to forsake me. And they're going to just become apostates. You think about, again, how that must have hit Moses. He, again, he's invested his entire life into these people. And you just would be tempted to think, well, I just wasted my life. I just wasted my life pouring it into a bunch of people that are going to abandon you and walk away from you. What, what was this all about, Lord? The interesting thing is that Moses doesn't take that kind of an attitude, but it had to be hard news for him to hear. It happens to this day. God can call you to give yourself to some ministry and you pour your life into that ministry. It can be in terms of service, it can be in terms of financial, it can be in a lot of terms. Pour years and decades into a church and serving in that church. And then one day it goes sideways, it's overtaken by false doctrine, no longer represents the teaching of the Word of God, maybe collapses and dissolves entirely and you look at your life and you say all that money I gave to that church what a terrible waste all those hours that I put into serving down there just a total complete waste don't ever think that way we are rewarded for our faithfulness to what God has called us to do we are not rewarded on the basis of the faithfulness of other people in terms of what we did as unto the Lord. Your reward awaits you in heaven. We're going to be rewarded one day for our faithfulness to our own ministries. 
faithfulness to God's calling. One day that we want to hear from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And no life can be considered a success that does not hear those words from, from the mouth of Jesus. But this kind of thing happens all the time. And people get fried and they get burnt and they don't want to have anything to do with serving God again, pouring their lives out again, that kind of thing. Don't let it, don't let it take you off track. It's just the way that it is. What you do is a reflection on you. What other people do, that's a reflection on them. But Moses' faithfulness made that nation responsible. And so, difficult news to hear. And then the Lord said, My anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. They've forsaken me, verse 16. I will then forsake them, verse 17, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done, and which they, uh, in that they have turned to other gods, to, to idolatry. Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves. So he instructs Moses to write a song down. And he said, I want you to teach this song to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. And so one of the purposes of the song was to be a witness against the children of Israel in their coming apostasy. And so the song was to be a warning against Apostasy. So God's got a message that he wants to plant into the heart of his people so that it will come to their remembrance in their days of apostasy. And he figures the best way to do that is to do it by a song. And it's true. It's interesting that uh, God says, when he says he wants to put this message in the form of a song, very often when a person, and certainly the Jews, when they were uh, memorizing large sections of Scripture, they would put the section of Scripture uh, to a song. It's easier to memorize a song than sometimes just to memorize just the words on a page kind of a thing. And so songs end up kind of end up being remembered when uh, when everything else gets forgotten, makes it easier to remember words. I think about uh, useless things that we've learned in the form of song. You think about commercials. You can remember from 30 years ago because of the, the songs. Songs from old television shows. They're perfectly useless. You, wish you could memorize scripture that way. Flintstones. Meet the Flintstones. They're a modern Stone Age family from the town of Bedrock. They're a page right out of history. Someday, maybe Fred will win the fight, and that cat will stay out for the night. Flintstones, through the Flintstones. Have a gabba dabba do time, a dabba do time. Well, have a great old time, you know. So, but I mean, it's just useless. Yes, really. If I quoted Psalm 150, nothing. I'd get nothing from you. But something like that. So we hear these songs and they stick with you. And you think about the power of songs. They're very powerful to me. You think about songs that you listen to 
uh, very often earlier in life and formative years in our lives, uh, when uh, as young people, and you'd hear a song and it would be connected with a particular event or a particular relationship or a particular time in our lives. And to rehear that song is almost to put us right back in the place once again. It's the power of, of a song. And so what God wants to do here, he doesn't want to use songs in the carnal way that the world uses songs. He wants to teach them a song and to teach it to the young, teach it to the old, teach it to everyone so the kiddos will grow up knowing this song by heart so that their formative things that are happening in their hearts and their minds and their youth and all these things, not being fashioned by the world, but being fashioned by a song from God, so that, so that it, it would be in their heart, they could sing it at the drop of a hat, and it would be a song that would be encouraging holiness and faithfulness to God in the, in the life of a young person in really all ages. And so that's the purpose for putting this message in in a song and i'm so thankful for how what boy the worship and worship songs and those that write them and those that lead us in worship to put those songs inside of our hearts and and they lord always bringing them to our remembrance and great events of god that he's done in our lives associated with yeah i remember that song and i remember christians i was hanging out with at that time and what we were going through and what we were learning and the great things that god was doing and and it it feels good and so that's what this song was all about he said when i have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey of which i swore to their fathers and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and I will prov- and will provoke me and break my covenant. And then it shall be, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know that the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them into the land of which I swore to give to them. So uh, he said it would be a witness against them. In other words, once they went into the land, gave themselves over to idols, began to disobey God, nobody could say, hey, how come nobody, how come nobody told us how important it was to obey God and not get you know, pulled into idolatry? And God would be able to say, the song is a witness, the song that you've been taught in your youth that warned you not to do that. And therefore Moses, he wrote this song on the same day, obviously God gave it to him, and he taught it to the children of Israel. So Moses is a great lawgiver, he's a great leader, he's also a songwriter. Uh, we know that Psalm 90, we don't know of any other psalms that I'm aware of, but Psalm 90 is ascribed uh, to Moses, and so he had this kind of gift Uh, in his life also. And then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. And so here you have the older Moses now uh, encouraging the younger Joshua. Joshua is not 18 years old. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But he's being encouraged by Moses. You're going you're gonna to step in here, and God's going to do great things uh, through you. And so a great encouragement to Joshua. Now you think about Joshua because he was standing with Moses when the Lord told Moses, listen, you're going to... Let me just tell you where these people are going to go. They're going to derail and they're going to crash and burn in a big way. Joshua heard it too. 
And yet Joshua, even though he knew what the future was going to be, he was called to be faithful in his time, in his generation, in his calling, in his ministry. And to his credit, he did it. Again, the whole issue, I don't care what we do for the Lord. Ultimately, it all comes down to faithfulness. Because God will ask you and I to do things that we would never do for another person in and of ourselves. But we will do it for the Lord. And so he calls on them to be faithful unto him, their relationship to him. And so Joshua, to his credit, listens to all of this and faithfully fulfills his ministry. And so it was when Moses uh, had completed writing the words of this law in a book uh, when, and so it was, when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take the book of the law, put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. And in, in other words, so you know where to find it every seven years to, li- to read it. Now remember that reading of the Scriptures every seven years, people didn't like have a Bible at home. Where did I put my Bible? And everything was handwritten. So every seven years, wow, we get to hear the Bible read. It's a big deal. And, And so he said, I want you to put it beside the Ark of the Covenant so you always know where that copy of the law is. He didn't say to put it inside of the Ark of the Covenant. What's inside of the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy was to be outside of the Ark of the Covenant, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know that your rebellion... I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song uh, until they were ended. And so here is the song. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Oh, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. So Moses begins the song. How long is it? Oof, man, huh? Boy, have faith. (laughs) Moses begins the song by calling on heaven and earth to be a witness to the things that he's saying. Now, where do you find witnesses in life? Court of law. And what you have here in this whole setting of this song is essentially a a court of, of law. Moses here is going to speak of God's integrity, of God's character. He's going to uh, uh, defend him in this court of law. He's going to speak of the sins of Israel against this innocent party. He's going to speak of God's judgment against their sin and the innocence of God in judging that sin. And so the whole thing is like a court proceeding that's occurring in 
in, in the song. And so he, he calls on them, uh, calls on heaven and earth to witness uh, what it is that he's about to speak. He declares, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. And so his prayer is and desire is, is that his words are going to be a refreshment and a blessing to the hearers. And these kind of talking about moisture on plants and all in the Middle East. I mean, he's, he's talking about something that uh, they really valued moisture there. And it was considered a great blessing to plants, of course, in that arid Middle East. He's praying that this song would be a blessing to their hearts. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. And now he describes the integrity and the character of God. He is the rock. Now, when we talk, we can think of a lot of things when we think about a rock. But for uh, in that day, when you thought about a rock, you thought about a foundation. A rock was something you built your house on. Something firm. It spoke of stability. It, talk, it spoke of endurance. It spoke of, of being there, permanence and, and sureness. And so he's saying that this is what the Lord um, has been to the nation of Israel. His work is perfect. In other words, God had been nothing but perfect to these people. For all, not part, for all of his ways are justice. God had always dealt fairly with these people. He is a God of truth and without injustice. God had never ever lied to them or failed to keep his promises. They could never accuse him of being unfaithful. Righteous and upright is he. And so unlike all of the uh, false gods of, of the nations around the, the nation of Israel and the idols which did all kinds of lewd and terrible and unholy things, things that would make you ashamed to call them a god. God said, I've never given my people a cause to be ashamed of me. I'll bear witness that I've never been ashamed of him. Never been ashamed. I don't know how he feels about me. That's another story, isn't it? I've never been ashamed of him. And so Moses declares this concerning God. The translation of it essentially is that God had been nothing but good and faithful to Israel. In other words, in this court of law, his character is unassailable. They could not accuse him of any wrongdoing as an excuse for their apostasy. And, and their departure from God. And, and every witness, uh, I think, of, of the nation of Israel ultimately, or any backslider in human history, is once they, uh, you know, stop trying to justify and this thing and that thing, is, is always to say, God had been nothing but good to me. And what I did in leaving him and walking away uh, from him, I don't blame him for my choices at, at all. And so this is the character of God. And they have corrupted themselves. And these are the charges now brought against Israel. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and a crooked generation. And then they had, uh, this is what they had become, but they hadn't become that in a vacuum. They became that in spite of all of the grace that God had extended to them as a nation and a people. And so Moses lays that out. Do you thus deal with the Lord 
O foolish and unwise people, do you treat his kindness, his character in this way? Is he not your father who bought you? And has he not made you and established you? He reminds them of uh, Egypt and how God had bought them or redeemed them or purchased them out of uh, Egypt. And so remembering how good God had been to them and not only bringing them out of Egypt. And he's kind of speaking to the generation that's going to apostatize in the, in the future of the history of the nation of Israel. Not only did he get them out of Egypt, but he then made the nation of Israel into something great, end of verse 6, and then established them. And, and so that's what the Lord had done. He'd purchased the nation, he'd made them into something valuable, and then he had established them. And it's the same thing that he's done for us. We haven't been redeemed by corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but we've been redeemed, purchased by the precious blood of Christ. And then what did God do? He made us his workmanship, his work of art, he took us from what He found us, the condition that He found us in, and He made us into something valuable, something precious, and then He brought stability into our lives, established us, and, and made us, instead of this flighty, crazy thing that we once were, made us something that is, is settled and firm. He said, remember the days of old and consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. He said, let me give you a history lesson about how good God has been to you. He said, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. And what God is saying there is remember prior to the, the Tower of Babel where the uh, people tried to build this tower up in, into heaven and reach heaven on the basis of their own works. God then confused their languages and, and people began to speak. They all spoke one language up to that point in time. He confused their languages and people began to spread out around the world and establish nations at that point. And when they went off all around the world and began to establish nations, the Lord, as Moses said here, the Lord took the land of Israel and he preserved it for you. God, God put a circle around. No matter who was going to settle in that thing, it was for you. That's what he's done for you as a people. And he found him, speaking of the nation of Israel, in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. Now you remember when God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, where was he? He's in a desert. I mean, it was, I mean, it was water there and, and all, but out of, in, they were, Abraham was, he was a part of a nobody people in a very forgettable place. So it comes a very humble, Israel was born out of very humble background. And, and God found him in that wasteland. He encircled him. He instructed him. In other words, he, again, he made him into something. He nurtured him. And he kept him as the apple of his eye. And as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up and carrying them on its wings. In other words, God said, God found them 
And he, in the same way that an eagle works with great patience and expertise to uh, mature an eaglet so that it can learn to soar, so that it can learn about the heavenlies and the blessings of soaring in the heavenlies. He, he said, so God did the same thing with them, and he does the same thing with us. It's interesting that when it talks about Israel as the apple of the Lord's eye, it certainly speaks of the fact that God is ever watchful uh, of, of Israel. But it also speaks of when something is the apple of someone's eye, it speaks of the fact that that something is precious in the eyes of the beholder. And God was, and Moses was communicating to the people is that early on they were precious in the sight uh, of, of the Lord. And those, it brought the Lord joy to change them from what they once were into something spiritual, into something uh, beautiful. And, and so the Hebrew, when it talks about the apple of his eye, it literally means the pupil of his eye. The Hebrew literally leads, reads, he kept them as the little man in his eye. Now how close do you have to be to a person that you can look in their pupil and see yourself the little man in it? Got to be pretty close. God says, I'm real close to these people. And, and that's, that's the way that, that I, I treasure them. He kept his eye closely on them for, his, uh, for their good. And so the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with him. God said, listen, I made you into what I made you into. And I didn't need any idols to do that. So why are you going to go worship idols? And he made him, the nation of Israel, to uh, ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. And he made him draw honey from the rock, talking about the, the fruitfulness of the land. I mean honey and oil from the flinty rock and curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with the fat of, of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. I mean, you're talking about honey and oil and curds and, and lamb and beef and goat and wheat and wine. He said, I brought you into an abundant life. And he did. But Jeshurun, speaking of Israel, grew fat spiritually and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. And he's talking about them spiritually here. And the, and the picture is, is that it's like here you have the owner of this great ox and he has taken care of this ox. He has fed this ox. He has made that ox into what it is. And then one day, the ox decides he's something. And he starts to kick at his owner. What are you going to do with an ox like that? Give me a kimmy, kimmy, bad. Kick me, I tell you. Why I oughta. I mean, that would just infuriate you. And that's what they did. God blessed them. And. It, and they became proud in their prosperity. And one of the hardest places to remain dependent upon God and spiritual in is when He prospers us. The interesting thing is that to obey God's Word generally leads to prosperity. So this, this is something that every generation of God's people faces. He blesses us and then the great thing that we have to be careful of 
is that those blessings don't move us from God. And then what happened in the thinking of the children of Israel, and we're tempted to do the same thing, is we begin to think that all these blessings came into our life because of what we are and because we're so smart. And we begin to take credit for those blessings and then we begin to forget God and then we begin to live for other things and then the downward spiral begins. And so he said, then following this pride of of all these blessings, then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. We see this reference to God as the rock continually uh, through this, this particular song. So after all these things that God, Moses again, he's laying this case, after all these things God did for them, this is how they treated God and they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with their idolatry, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your father did not fear. And so here Moses talks about them offering sacrifices to idols and he essentially equates it with the offering of sacrifice to demons. The Apostle Paul, when he, he would later write to the church at Corinth, he would say much the same thing. He said, the idols are nothing. The little wooden thing, the little stone thing, it's nothing. It's a stone thing. What's the demon behind it? What's happening in the demonic realm, the spiritual realm that's behind it? That's what's being worshipped. To worship uh, any, anything like that, you're tapping into the demonic realm. So there's a spirit. That's why people look and say, well, why in the world would people leave God? And there's a lot of reasons for it, but why would they leave God and then go worship something that's so obviously inferior? It's not just a physical thing. There's a spiritual reality around this stuff. There's a supernatural draw to this kind of stuff. But it's demonic draw. It's a demonic power. And we resist it by continuing to walk with God. But that's why these things are attractive to people and why one of the reasons why apostasy was attractive to them. There's an entire demonic element behind uh, these sins and behind the worship of, of creation. Of the rock who begot you, you're unmindful. You've forgotten the God who fathered you. And so they willfully put him out of, of his mind, uh, out of their minds. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And so here is the, the reaction of God to their rejection of him. In other words, this is the sentence that's to be meted out on them for their spiritual crimes against God. God said, first of all, he would spurn them. And then, and, and then he said, I will hide my face from them. Now, when we talk about this, God's saying hiding his face from them, it's talking about God's countenance. God has a countenance where he wants to smile on his people. He wants to look at his people and, and smile. He wants to bless his people. So look at his people and have it be a great experience for him and a great experience for his people. But when he looks and he sees the sin, he can't have that countenance. There can't be that fellowship and that relationship uh, between them. 
And he says, I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. And so God would pour out his anger upon them. And I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Now it's interesting that God speaks here of the fact that one of his sentences that he would uh, bring out uh, upon them is that he would provoke If they wanted to provoke him to jealousy by worshiping idols, the Lord would provoke them to jealousy by taking the blessings that once belonged to the nation of Israel and then giving them to the Gentiles. And Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10, verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will anger you by a foolish nation. I remember one time we went to Israel, and while we were there, the the Jewish man who's very, very highly esteemed in Israel and uh, very, very respected, and he's a believer. And he came to meet with our group one evening and just to kind of talk about, you know, what's happening in terms of Christians in in the land of Israel. And lots of people are coming to know the Lord in Israel. It's it's really tremendous what's happening there spiritually. Uh, But... He was talking about the number of churches that there were in, in, we talk about a lot, but a lot compared to what there were. But he, he talked about the number of, of uh, Christians that were in the whole land of Israel, the number of churches, how many people that kind of attended that. And it was several thousand uh, people. I mean, uh, uh, not enough to fill, you know, one of the super mega churches in the United States of America. It was a big deal over there. Someone asked him and said, You know, while we're here in Israel, what can we do to just be a witness to the Jewish people? He said, just enjoy your relationship with God. Go to these sites and worship the Lord. Enjoy yourself. Laugh. Sing. Enjoy the Lord. Just be who you are in the Lord. And he says, the Jewish people look at you Gentile Christians And they see you experiencing all of the things that they know that they should be experiencing, but they aren't. And it provokes them to jealousy. And they see them come from Korea. They see them come from Canada. They see them come from the Netherlands. They see them come from Zaire. They see them come from Russia. They see them come from the United States. They see them come from Japan. They see these Gentiles come from all around the world and come to these sites and worship the Lord with a reality that's foreign to the Jewish people in the land. And he says, just do that in front of them and it will be witness enough. And just like Moses said here in, in the passage, it, it exists to this day. For a fire is kindled in my anger, and I will burn to the low, and, it, and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will send my arrows on them, and they shall be wasted by hunger. 
devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts. Even nature would turn against them in the form of these beasts that man was given dominion over. With the poison of serpents of the dust, the sword shall destroy outside talking about nations attacking them and speaking of the degree of the destruction of, of the sword. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. In other words, the slaughter that would come in from these invading nations uh, would not respect any age, any sex, anything, indiscriminate uh, vengeance that they would bring upon the children of Israel. And then the Lord speaks here in verse 26 and starts to talk about a future mercy that he would uh, bring upon Israel. In other words, they're not going to spend their entire history in judgment or in the imagery of the passage in jail. He said, I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them, speaking of Israel, to cease among men. God said, I, I was tempted to wipe them completely out. And here's what stopped him. Had I, I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversary should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done this. God is going to use in the future the empire of Assyria to judge his people and the Babylonian empire. And, and he said the thing that kept him from allowing the destruction of the nation of Israel entirely here was that if he allowed that to happen, that Assyria and Babylon would think that they had done it in their own power. And they would thus conclude that the false gods that they were serving were greater than the God of Israel. And so God's reputation was at stake here. The people didn't, children of Israel didn't care about God's reputation, but God was careful about his reputation because the salvation of the world hangs in the, hung in the balance with the Jewish people. For they are a nation, speaking of the Assyrians, speaking of the Babylonians, the nations that would then take advantage of Israel during that period of judgment and, and, and you know, bring oppression against them and, and bring their sword against them. They are a nation void of counsel nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock, that is the rock of Israel, had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? So it gives you an idea of how one-sided these battles were with these nations when they came in against Israel that you had one putting a thousand to flight, two putting ten thousand to flight. God had reversed that promise to the Jews if they had been obedient. And so their, their victory over the Jews was so decisive, and the, and, but their conclusion was, we're a great people, we're great warriors. And the Lord said, wow, in the light of how easily they routed the children of Israel, their only conclusion should have been that the Lord, their God, has surrendered them. But because they were a thick people and they weren't thinking in that way, uh, the Lord was going to defend the nation uh, of Israel and uh, so that these people wouldn't think they were greater than they were. For their rock is not, not like our rock, 
even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the, of the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up uh, upon my, uh, among my treasures? The Lord said, vengeance is mine and, uh, and recompense. And so the Lord is talking about the vengeance he will bring, not on Israel, but upon the nations that he used to judge Israel. God wanted them to use them to defeat Israel, but they took it way beyond what God wanted them to do. And they began to mete out their own cruel vengeance upon the children of Israel when they caught them in a time of weakness. And the Lord said, I wanted to use you so far. You took it way beyond that. And now I'm going to judge you for what you did. It's interesting. Galatians chapter 6 talks about the fact that if we see a brother who is overtaken in a fault, then you who are spiritual go to such a one in order to restore them. That's the attitude that we're to have. And, and the Lord takes note of the fact that we don't take and interject ourselves into a situation that he is judging someone at the moment and then we come in and pile on our uh, you know, ideas on top of them. And so the Lord took note of it, said he would judge them. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things uh, to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and... Uh, and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. And so when Israel has hit the bottom, God said, I'm going to be uh, merciful to them. And he will say to them, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. And so God has this kind of a sanctified sarcasm and where the people are all the way down and he speaks to them and, and says to them in essence, where are these great gods that you served? I took you out of nothing and made you into something. I blessed you in ways you never could have dreamed of and you left me for these things where are they now that you need their help and he's driving home the lesson in a powerful way so they'd never return to idolatry now see that I even I am he and there is no God besides me I kill and make alive I wound and I heal nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemies. And then he calls on both Jew and Gentile to praise the Lord for his grace in not destroying Israel in verse 34, 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his, pe with his people, with the Jews, 
for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries, and he will provide atonement for his land and for his people. And both Jew and Gentile to this day can be thankful that God did not give the nation of Israel what it deserved in its apostasy, and that is destruction, because he was determined to bring the Savior of both Jew and Gentile into the world through the nation. And so Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. And Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. I bet it was very sober. And he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of the law. For, that's a reason word, it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. Listen to this song. Teach the, learn this song. Teach this song to your children and have them teach it to their children and their children teach it to their children because your very life depends on obedience to what's contained in this song. The importance of looking at obedience to God's Word is a life or death issue. Why? Because it is. Because it is. And by this Word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. In other words, Moses said, I'm not happy about what God says this is going to turn into. What I do hope is that you'll obey the word and your days will be prolonged in the land. But the great warning against disobedience that's contained in the song. Again, and we stop there tonight because really this next section leads into the next chapter. Again, the importance of obedience in the life of the child of God. I think it's fascinating. Why don't the worship team come on up right now? I think that it's 